Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Brookside. So great to worship with you all here today. And, and then certainly a big welcome to everyone here at our Millard campus. Welcome to everyone at our Correctional Center campus. And welcome to everyone watching online. Again, it's great to worship our Lord together. Well, I, I've been looking forward all week to this new series that we're starting today, this new series called Everyday Hero. And we love heroes, not just because of some of the latest movies that have come out recently, though there's reason enough to love heroes because of that. But, but we love heroes because we have heroes. We have everyday heroes in our own lives that have touched us and helped shape us into the people that you are today. Maybe it's a coach or a teacher, a parent or a grandparent, or just whoever it else, somebody that lives on the block or whatever it is, somebody that is pretty normal if you look at them from the outside looking in, but who's had a tremendous influence on your life, helping, helping you become the person you are today, helping you become the person that you feel like God is calling you to be. Well, in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author gives us a, a list of everyday heroes in chapter 11. He, he lists out a, a bunch of, of actual men and women who lived a long time ago. Men and women you can read about a lot in the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, but, but men and women who were everyday heroes in their own time. The, these men and women that, we've re, that we read about in Hebrews 11, they're people we can all relate to. They had their own families. They had their own problems and their own dreams. They had their own things that filled up their days, and they probably had issues that kept them up at night. Just like we have those same things, families and problems and dreams, things that fill up our days, and things that keep us up at night. None of these people listed in Hebrews 11 are perfect. They had flaws. Some of them had really big flaws, big chinks in their armor. If you study them closely, those will come out pretty evidently. And we never want to excuse those flaws. But at least at one level, that's encouraging to me to know that God doesn't wait until we're perfect before he works in us and through us in some big ways. And then this, this group of everyday heroes in Hebrews 11 is a diverse group of people. God doesn't use people that are cut out of only one mold. That there's men and there's women. That there's people that come from a whole host of different backgrounds and cultures over a period of about, of about a few hundred different years at least. But, but the thing that unites this group of everyday heroes in Hebrews 11 is their faith. They had big faith in a big God. They didn't have superpowers. They weren't perfect. Instead, they, they had the one thing that any one of you can still have today, any one of us can still show today, faith in God that stands out in all the right ways. A lot of people actually call Hebrews chapter 11 the faith hall of fame. The whole chapter is about faith. Right out of the gate, verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11, we're given this definition of faith that we can read. It says, it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then if you read that, that definition of faith, and, and maybe you're still scratching your head just a little bit saying, so, so what does that really mean? The, the author of Hebrews helps us by giving us example after example of people who lived out this sort of faith that he defines. He takes that abstract definition of faith and he gives it flesh and bone. He, he, he puts boots on the ground and he says, okay, he, here's how that faith that is commendable in God's sight, here's how that faith gets lived out in the life of Noah and, and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph 
and Rahab and so many others that you can look into. Verse 2 says that all these people, all of these everyday heroes, they're commended for their faith. A few verses down in verse 16, it says this sort of faith gets God's attention in a big way. God is proud of people who show this sort of big faith. He's not ashamed to be called their God. So, so these are the greats that Hebrews 11 lists for us. And so this should make all of us say, okay, if that's the sort of faith God commends, if, if that's the sort of life God is, is not ashamed of in his followers, how do I grow in that sort of faith? How do I take steps in that direction? Well, the best way to grow in anything is to learn from the best. And so that's why the author of Hebrews lists this faith hall of fame the way he does. These are hall of famers for faith. He wants us to see what vibrant faith looks like. So that way, in, in all of the different situations we're all coming from, we can take steps of growing in the same kind of faith today. And so what we're doing in this series is we're just letting Hebrews 11 lead us back into the Old Testament, into the lives of different men and women who show the sort of faith that we want to we cultivate in our lives. And then as we see how faith in God takes shape in their lives, I want us to get bigger vision for how faith in God can take shape in our lives. I want us to see that faith isn't just some feeling. Faith isn't just some idea. Faith isn't just something we, we do on Sundays. I want us to see that faith is something that, that captures us in a big way because of who we place our faith in and, and that takes practical shape in our lives, in our relationships, in our weeks. By, by the time we're done with, with not only this series, but by the time we're done today, I want you to have a little bit of a better idea for how faith impacts your relationships this week. Some relationships are humming along. They're going great. Other relationships are, are broken. They need attention. Regardless, I want you to see how faith should take shape in those relationships. I want you to, to see what faith means for your life when things are going well. But I want you to see what faith means for your life when things are really difficult. And then again and again, I just want to direct our attention back to the God in whom we place our faith. So that way we cultivate a big view of God that will encourage big steps of faith for us. So one, one more quick thing to say on the front end, and then we'll get right into the life of Noah, who we're going to be looking at today. It's common, for, for me at least, to hear people pit faith and reason against each other. Well, like there's this tug of war. You can't have, you can't have both. Either you're reasonable or you have faith. Reasonable people don't show faith is something like the argument as it goes. They, they say that our faith works against thinking or that thinking works against faith and that faith is just some completely blind leap in the dark. That is not true. Christianity never asks you to check your brain at the door. Christianity will never ask you to work contrary to the evidence. Instead, Christianity asks you to take a look at the evidence and then follow the evidence where it leads. Faith isn't anti-reason. Let me say it this way, if this is helpful for you. Faith isn't irrational, it's, it's transrational. Faith invites our best thinking. We want good thinkers to, to bring that best thinking to the Christian faith. But, but faith involves more than just our best thinking. It involves our best thinking, but it involves our heart. 
Who will we bow our hearts to? It involves our will. It involves our actions. True faith should, over the course of time, in all sorts of different ways, change what we do. And so, so faith, yes, it involves our best thinking. But it involves your will and your actions as well. Keep all of that in mind as we keep moving ahead throughout this series. All right, let's look at the life of Noah. Here's what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, bringing Noah up for us. He says, says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear he built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world. So, So we'll see a little bit more how to understand that statement by the end of today. But by faith he became heir of the righteousness as well. That is in keeping with faith. Well, when the book of Hebrews was written, it was written in the first century to a group of Jewish Christians, ethnic Jews who had placed their faith in Jesus. But but because they were Jewish, they they knew the Old Testament, the first part of our Bibles, really well. And so, so when the author of Hebrews brings up this guy, Noah, they immediately would have had this whole this whole memory bank to say, oh, that's who he's talking about, that their minds would have immediately gone to Genesis chapters 6 through 9 and said, okay, how does what we know about Noah, how does that show us what a lifestyle of faith looks like? So what I want to do today is I want to do the same thing. I want to take what, what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven seven. I want, to, I want that to let us go back to, Hebrew, to Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 6 through 9, where we read about Noah. See, what can you learn about faith? What can we learn about faith from Noah? If you're familiar at all with the story of Noah, the, the, the first things that probably come to your mind are, are maybe Noah's family, a whole lot of water, uh, an ark, and a whole lot of animals. Then you're like, ah, that's probably messy. I have, enough, uh, I have a tough enough time caring for our dog and our cat. Imagine a whole lot of animals. But, but, but the second you press more deeply into the story of Noah than that, you realize there's more than what we first think of. Noah's story this morning will probably become a little bit more gritty to you. Because as as we see faith in the life of Noah, you will see that faith doesn't always get lived out in neat or controlled circumstances. In fact, faith often gets lived out in, in messy, often even hostile environments. As we look more deeply at the life of Noah, you'll, you'll see Noah's faith inspire your own in bigger ways. Noah's faith isn't just some idea he believes. Noah's faith changes what he does, how he relates to others, how he spends his time. Noah's faith takes shape in very practical ways. And then, and then in all of this, we certainly don't want to miss the God that Noah believes in. We will see the power of God and the grace of God on full display. But remember, this isn't just about Noah. This is about us. As we look at Noah's life of faith, I want you to see specific ways you can grow in faith yourself. And so let's put all of this into, into a few points we're going to cover as we move forward, just to give us some structure. Here's what we'll see about faith from the life of Noah. We'll see that faith in God shines brightly in a dark world. We'll see that vibrant faith, it involves bold commitment. And then we'll see that the focus of our faith is a powerful and gracious God who is worthy of our trust. So faith in God shines brightly in a dark world. Now now this maybe sounds a little churchy or a little cliche-ish to people, but 
But cliches are, are grounded in truth. They're cliches because, because there's traction with what people really realize. So, so I want us to skip over the cliche part of that and say, hey, faith in God shines brightly in a dark world. What's the truth that that is grounded in? So uh, the story of Noah starts in Genesis chapter 6. But as we read through that story, before we're ever introduced to Noah as a person, we're introduced to the, to the world in which Noah lives. Here's Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The Bible says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever. And so right away there, there's conflict that's introduced into the chapter, because cause, cause why is God's spirit contending with humans? There's, there's some disconnect. There's something broken between the way God designed the world and how humans are living. So there's conflict. My spirit won't contend with humans forever, for they're mortal. Their days will be 120 years. And then the, the Nephilim, verse 4, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. So, so those first four verses of Genesis 6 actually get a lot of attention if you really dig into it. People are like, okay, what's really going on? Who are all these groups that are talked about? Who are the Nephilim? What's going on there? Some people actually wonder if there's like spiritual forces behind some of this, like demonic activity. But, but however we deal with some of those questions that maybe you've been introduced to, verse 5 drives us to what is the bottom line of this passage. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. One Old Testament scholar says, says this about verse 5. He says, there is hardly a stronger statement in the Bible about the evil of the human heart. So, so whatever we do with those verses leading up to it, verse 5 is clear. Verse 5 is showing us how, how deeply depraved and wicked humanity had become. Every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. Verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. This is your first time reading this passage. That, that statement probably catches you off guard. It's a strong statement. The Lord God regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Now, these verses don't mean that God made a mistake in creation. These verses don't mean that God didn't know this was coming. Instead, these, these verses show us how deeply our sin hurts God's heart. These verses show us that God acts to judge sin. And then verse 11 gives us even a little bit more insight into how sinful and broken creation had become here in this setting in which Noah lives. It says the earth was corrupt and full of violence. So when we put all this together that we've been seeing here about the world in which Noah lives, the picture we're getting is one of, of moral depravity, of corruption, of rebellion, of injustice, violence. 
a few summers ago, Carrie and, and, our, and our boys, we were touring a cave in the Black Hills. We were up there uh, for some vacation, and so went down underneath the ground into this cave, and we were going down about 20 or 30 minutes. It was a huge cave. When we got to the lowest point of the cave, the, the tour guide we were with, with the whole group, said, okay, everybody make sure your phones are off, no, uh, no, uh, no watches on, no light, and then, and then this guide turned off every light in the place, her flashlight, all the little lights along the pathway, and it was pitch black. She, just, she left it that way for one minute, and that was one minute too uncomfortable for me, right? I mean, just when, when you're sitting there in pitch black, can't see where to go, couldn't see what to do in case anything had happened, it is, it is tremendously uncomfortable. You, you don't want to stay in that situation for too long. This pitch black cave is a picture of the world in Genesis chapter 6. It is a world of depravity, of rebellion, of injustice, and violence. The world that just a few chapters before that, the world that God had created so good, is broken. It's fallen. It's dark with sin. But then we get some light. Verse 9, we're introduced finally to Noah. Read how he's introduced. It says, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Well, what a contrast between Noah, the way he's described, and, and, and the, the rest of the world is described. The world whose who's every inclination of their heart, only evil, all the time. Noah stands out within his culture. Noah stands out living distinctly, living with integrity, refusing to compromise, walking with God. Faith in God shines brightly in a dark world. What a lesson on the nature of faith for us, Brookside. Even as we're grateful for the many things in our culture we can, we can embrace, we can celebrate, let's never forget there will always be things in our culture that, that will mean we just live differently in some of those key ways. It means we don't embrace everything. It means we, we live with discernment. We live according to God's word, this book, who God is. And it means there are ways we just live distinctly. We live differently in specific ways. Faith in God drives us to live differently than the world around us in key ways. <coughs> there are all sorts of ways this can look. Faith in God drives us to honesty when it'd be easier to cut corners. Faith in, faith in God shapes the, the words that we use, the, the jokes that we laugh at, the way we talk about others when they're not there. Faith, faith in God maybe means you, you stop watching a show others are talking about. Faith in God means something for how you spend your free time. If you're a student now on summer break, faith in God hopefully means something for part of how you're using your time this summer. Faith in God changes how we interact with others on social media. You, you get the picture. There are all sorts of ways faith in God drives us to live distinctly, to live differently than the wider culture around us. As followers of Jesus, there are ways we should look different, ways we should stand out, ways we should shine brightly, in a, in a culture that has, that has its dark spots. But this isn't easy. 
living this way, shining as brightly, it, it, it asks something of us. It costs us something. This brings us right to our, our next point. Vibrant faith, it involves bold commitment. One of my favorite pictures for, for explaining faith in Jesus is, is the trapeze act in a circus. You guys can picture what I'm talking about. There's, there's one trapeze partist, artist, in my mind, they usually have kind of their legs wrapped around the, the trapeze bar, kind of way high up in the air, suspended only by a couple ropes from the ceiling. So, so this, this first trapeze artist is flying this way in this big circus tent, and then there's a second trapeze artist that's hanging on to the bar themselves, and they're flying just as fast towards the first trapeze artist. And there, there's some point in the circus act where that second trapeze artist has to launch themselves she has to launch herself towards that first trapeze artist, somersaulting through the air, it's usually pretty amazing, and then get caught by the first trapeze artist. But, but I'm no trapeze artist, but, but my guess is that launch, it can't be, be hesitant. It can't be reluctant. It has to be bold. That, that trapeze artist has to show bold commitment as she entrusts herself to the first gymnast. Noah shows that same sort of bold commitment in the story we read here in Genesis 6 through 9. Or just remember what it says in Hebrews eleven seven. 7. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in, in holy fear he builds an ark. Before a storm cloud is in the sky, before a raindrop hits the ground, Noah is out building a boat. I heard one guy this last week say, say Noah's basically building a freight liner in the middle of Kansas. I mean, it just wouldn't have computed. I mean, imagine the people of his time seeing what Noah is doing, laughing, ridiculing, whatever they're doing. But it certainly didn't make sense. But there Noah is, building a boat. Here's a summary of the ark's dimensions that I ran across uh, from one scholar this week. I think there's a picture that's going to come up on the screen as well. Uh, I don't think Noah had the cars next to his boat, uh, but this is actually a place in Kentucky that built a life-size version of the ark, right? So, so here's some of the dimensions. Just get a, get a sense for this size. Noah's ark, when we take the figures literally, is huge. It would have measured 450 by 75 by 45 feet, about half the length of the Titanic. God specified that it have three decks, one door, one window. It was basically a barge waterproofed with pitch, so, so a floating waterproof shoebox, right? It, it had neither keel nor rudder. Noah's ship had a capacity of 150,000 cubic feet, ample space for thousands of animals in the stores to feed them. And then for, for decades, probably 120 years, Noah is building this boat. He's cutting lumber and swinging a hammer. And it doesn't compute. The weather isn't changing. For decades, for a century, it doesn't compute. And then it does. The floods come. The earth is covered. And Noah and his family are saved because of his bold commitment. Noah and his family are saved because of his faith. I mean, just, just imagine for yourself what ripple effects might your faith have, might your bold commitment have in your own family, 
in your own friendship groups, in your own relationships. But, but don't jump to the end of the story too quickly and just, just think about, okay, here's, here's the ark resting neatly on a mountaintop and, no, Mo, and Noah and everybody else living happily ever after, which isn't necessarily the case if you read the story. Don't, don't, don't jump to the end too quickly and miss the middle. For decades, Noah's faith displayed itself in bold commitment. Noah's faith wasn't just some abstract idea. Noah's faith meant something for the way he lived, for the way he acted, for how he spent his time, for how he interacted with others. It was a conviction, a commitment, a bold commitment that took shape in practical steps of obedience. The older I get, the, the more I, I find that I have to, I have to fight against uh, controlled commitment to God or, or what I call same old commitment to God. Selfishly, I, I want to have a say in how my commitment to God takes shape as I look ahead in my life. I, I want to have some control over what it means. Or, or I expect the things that God is going to ask me to do in the future, ask me to do in the future, I, I expect that's going to look a whole lot like the things that he asked me to do in the past. But Noah won't let us settle for this. He won't let us settle either for a controlled commitment or same old commitment. Noah is a model for us of bold commitment. His, his faith in God led him to do bold things for God when he was almost 500 years old. You are never too old to be invited into fresh steps of big commitment for God. Noah's faith in God was more important to him than his reputation, and it was bigger to him than his expectations for himself. Vibrant faith involves bold commitment. What this looks like isn't just a one-and-done faith in Jesus, where, okay, we can check that box off now and go live however we want. Faith in Jesus means we keep taking steps of commitment, of faith, of obedience in response to God, in response to his word and what we read here. You maintain firm belief in God's promises. You remain open to, to new ways God might direct your life, even when you don't know what all that's going to look like five steps down the road. In faith, you keep launching yourself from your trapeze bar towards God, who's, who's big enough to, to get you strong enough to hold you. So far, we've learned from Noah that faith in God shines brightly in a dark world. We've, we've, we've learned that vibrant faith involves bold commitment. But the final lesson on faith from Noah's life isn't about Noah at all. The final lesson we want to see is about the God in whom Noah places his faith. Here's our third point. That the focus of our faith is on a powerful and gracious God who is worthy to be trusted. Let's go back to our trapeze illustration. I'm about 99.99999% sure that at no time in the future am I going to be on a trapeze bar, flying through a circus, hurtling towards somebody waiting to catch me. I can almost guarantee it, right? My future just looks different than that. But if there's ever a chance that like 0.00001% that, that maybe it's going to happen, 
if that's ever going to happen, I would want to make sure certain things were in place first. I'd want to make sure that the other person hurtling towards me is strong enough to catch me and hang on to me. I'd want to make sure that this isn't his first rodeo or his first circus, right? That, that, that he knew that he, he would know what to do when he had me, that he could be trusted, that, that if I trusted my life in his hands, he's trustworthy. Well, well as we read through the story of, of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, we learn that God is worthy of our bold commitment in all of those ways. We, we learn that God is worthy to be trusted. He's strong, he's perfect, and he's good. God is strong in his power, right? In, in sending the flood, God shows that he commands creation. That's strength. He's strong enough to control the natural forces of the world. In the story of Noah, we learn that God is perfect in his justice because the creation is rebelling. It's unjust. It's violent. It's wicked. It's depraved. We need the king to step in and restore things to the way they're supposed to be. We want justice in those sorts of scenarios. And then perhaps most stunningly, we learn that God is abundant in his grace. What should shock us in the story of Noah isn't the flood. Again, because, because the, the, the behavior of God's creation that he created with a certain design was rebelling against him. What, what should surprise us isn't the flood. Isn't God stepping in to, to act justly? What should surprise us is the grace God shows inviting Noah into his plan, rescuing Noah and his family, and then promising with a rainbow, Genesis 9, that he would never flood the earth again. Fast forward from the time of Noah to today. And whatever else is different across those thousands of years that have passed, God is the same. God is still strong in his power. He is still perfect in his justice. And he is still abundant with his grace. We know this not only from Noah's story, but we know this from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, who is himself fully God. Jesus showed the strength of God's power, not, not in conquering, but in service. Because if you want to see strength, Watch how that strength is channeled. And when you can channel strength into service in all the ways that Jesus served, that is powerful strength. Jesus is, is, is perfect in his justice. Sin has to be dealt with. Jesus knows that. He knew that. And so he came to deal with sin because sin cannot be ignored Rebellion, injustice, violence, depravity cannot be winked at. So Jesus came to, to show his perfect justice in dealing with sin. But the way that he deals with sin shows the abundance of his grace. Because, because Jesus didn't give us the flood that we deserve. He didn't give us the judgment that we deserve Jesus took that flood 
that you deserve, that I deserve. He took that upon himself, bearing our sins in his body on the cross, taking the judgment, the flood that we deserve, so that anyone who believes in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord can be saved. That's the sort of God we believe in. God is strong in his power. He's perfect in his justice. And he's abundant in his grace. That's what we learned from Noah. That's what we see in Jesus. God is worthy to be trusted. Well, we're coming up on summer. And so that means there are a lot of athletes out there who are looking ahead to different summer camps, middle school athletes, high school athletes, college athletes, checking out different summer camps where they can improve their game just a little bit. And, and I'm sure that there is all sorts of good sports camps out there across every range of sport that exists. But for whatever reason, the one that I'm kind of halfway familiar with, only because I've heard of other athletes kind of going there, uh, is, is, the, is the Peyton Manning, uh, or the Manning Passing Academy, excuse me. And so, uh, so the Manning Passing Academy owned and operated by, by Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, by their family. They're great quarterbacks. Uh, I was on their website earlier this week because maybe there's still a chance for me. Uh, not really. I was, on their, I was on their website because I knew what I was talking about, right? So I'm just kind of looking at, at, at how they approach improving the game of others. And so, so here's what their homepage says at the Manning Passing Academy. It says, we've gathered some of the most successful and brightest coaches and players from the professional college and high school ranks to help all campers learn from the best. The Manning Passing Academy knows what we all know. If you want to improve your game, learn from the best. Brookside, uh, I know I speak for our whole pastoral staff, all the ministry leaders here, our elders, we want to be a church that is strong in our faith, that has big faith in a big God who, who's still calling us to do big things, who's still working in us in big ways. And, and as we seek to, to stay pointed in that direction, we need to learn from the best. We need to learn from Hall of Famers who can help us grow in our faith that's what Noah does. He helps, he helps us grow in our faith. Faith in God shines brightly in a dark world. And so by faith, in what ways do you need to, to live differently from the world in which we're placed? We, we do it humbly. We do it graciously. But we still live differently in certain key ways. How do you need to live differently? A vibrant faith involves bold commitment. But by faith in Jesus, how are you opening yourself up to, to still, whatever stage of life you're in, to still taking fresh steps of big obedience in response to God and, and who He is, what He's asking you to do? And then the focus of our faith is a powerful and gracious God who is worthy of your trust. Is this the God that you know? Well, what truths about God do you need to discover or rediscover to, to launch yourself from the trapeze bar in bold commitment, trusting that he's got you, that he knows what he's doing, that trusting yourself in his hands is, is good 
and right and best. Well, we want to be a different people. We want to be a different church and different individuals as a result of this series. The whole thing put together, but also each individual week. And so, so as we seek to let God shape us and form us into being different people, one question I just want to ask you and then give you just a few seconds to, to start asking for yourself is, is this. Here's the question. Is, is, Lord, where do you want me to grow in faith? We've seen what faith looks like today. We've seen it in the life of a Hall of Famer. It's not perfect, but, but, he, but he shows faith. Lord, where do you want me to grow in faith? Spend just a few seconds reflecting on that for yourself, and then I'll close this in prayer here in just 10 or 15 seconds. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a big God who can be trusted. We thank you for how you're perfect in your, in your strength, in your justice, how, how abundant you are in your grace. And God, we ask that who you are would, would shape our hearts in, in just ways where we're still willing to take fresh steps of big obedience for you. So Jesus, show us what that means for how to live differently what that practical commitment means for our, for, our, for our lives this week. And then Jesus, help us to see again that you're good, you're strong, you're worthy to be trusted. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.